0: My wife and I started watching Stranger Things recently because of our sermon series. Weird, right? If you guys are watching, it is so bizarre. But we're using that idea to launch into some teaching, some ongoing teaching about the kingdom of God. And what we find in the kingdom of God is that it's different than we would anticipate. It's backwards. It's upside down from from what we would expect. So over the last handful of weeks, we've been going through these parables and teachings that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapters 18 to 20, and we're looking at these different times when the kingdom of God is being taught into, and we're finding out it is different than we would expect. So do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. We've got some in baskets down by your feet, and get with me to Matthew chapter 20. We'll also put it up on the screens, so if you feel like you have to crawl over someone's lap to get to a Bible, don't worry about it. We'll throw it up there as well. But on page 801 is where you'll find the passage from this morning. And uh, I'm going to read the uh, the story, the text, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. This is page 801. We're in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Reads like this: Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, "We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law." They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and said, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. I need your help the kingdom and the way that it works is so different from how i am normally and naturally inclined and i pray god that you would help us as a church family to pursue greatness and to be willing to humble ourselves and serve others instead of thinking that we are the most important people in the world so lord as we've opened your word together we're asking that by your spirit you would speak to each of our hearts that you god would take this moment captive and change us so that we become more and more like your son. For anyone in here, God, who who doesn't yet know him in a saving way, would you, by your spirit, help them to see the beauty of Jesus our King? And would they be willing then to surrender their lives to him entirely? So we give you this time, God, and we ask that you would do incredible things. In Jesus' name, amen. When I first started into ministry, a buddy of mine and myself launched an action sports ministry, and it was a lot of fun because we got to travel around, and um, we were doing action sports, so skateboarding and wakeboarding and snowboarding. We travel around. We were trying to reach this subculture of the skate, wake, surf, you know, kids, and we were thinking, man, maybe an ordinary church service couldn't reach them, but if we went to them and did, you know, these sports and coached kids and did exhibitions, then that would give us the opportunity to share our testimonies. And present the gospel message to them, and it was a lot, of, a lot of fun, uh, and I loved it because we'd go to these camps, and all the kids would be like, "You're awesome!" and and then we'd be signing autographs, which you know it was just silly now to even think that my name's on anything, but we'd be signing these autographs, and the kids would be like, "Man, you guys are so cool!" And then God began to change some stuff in me, and I felt like, man, I feel like the the real action is in the local church, and so I came back home, and I started volunteering at our youth group, and it didn't take very long before that became the place where I was invested, and I became the full-time youth pastor there. Uh, and I was doing that for a while, but then, but then it was there was something in me, there was something that was bugging me, and I was trying to put my finger on it. And so my wife and I, we sat down, and I was talking to her. And so the youth group at the Bloit campus, they meet in the basement, and I just remember feeling this I am doing life in this dumpy, moldy basement. And I started to feel like nobody's ever going to know about me. Like nobody's ever going to find out about Corey Williams and be like, wow, this guy's awesome. He's a, he's a world changer. He's somebody who's investing in that next generation. Now, when I started at the youth group, I thought, we're going we're gonna to just tear this thing up. These young people are going to change the world. And then a few months in when I realized, man, these young people, they are a hot mess. And I'm not doing a great job of leading them toward anything, let alone changing the world. And so there was something in me that, was, that I was just wrestling with that tension. When am I ever going to do something significant enough that the world would take notice? And that's what the disciples are doing here. They are thinking about, they are revealing the desire of their heart that, that they, want to, they want to be known and so this kingdom teaching, this upside-down kingdom, it shows us a few different things. I'm going to share with you over the course of our time together three different things that the upside-down kingdom will do to us. The first is it will expose our desires. It'll reveal in us things that do not fit with that kingdom. The second thing that it'll do is it'll give, a, give us a new definition for what greatness truly is. The kingdom shows us that greatness, we think, it looks, we think it would look like this, and then Jesus says, no, really, it's over here. This is greatness. And then finally, the third thing we'll see is that the kingdom of God points us to the gospel. And it's only there that we really do find the ability for us to be changed the ability for us to pursue this greatness. So let's get to work. The first is the kingdom of God exposes our desires. It reveals in us things that we want so badly But we don't even think about the fact that those things that we feel like we need might not be what God wants for us. So what's happening in the story, we've got the brothers saying, we want to be in seats one and two. We want to, when you come into your glory and you're seated on your throne, we want to be the ones who have the seats of honor. We want to be your right-hand dude, your left-hand dude. We want everyone to kind of see we're the important people. And this isn't just some random idea that shows up out of nowhere. In fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, you can look back at it, but there was this interaction. There was a rich guy who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins to dialogue with him. And as the conversation progresses, the rich guy walks away because he begins to realize that to follow Christ means a total surrender, a complete allegiance to Jesus and what he's doing. And this guy isn't willing to part ways with his stuff. And Jesus is teaching the disciples then. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And Peter goes, well, we've left everything. What's What's in store for us? And Jesus says this in chapter 19, verse 28. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is crazy. You've got fishermen and tax collectors and this ragamuffin group of followers that didn't really make the cut in society. And Jesus is saying, "You guys, when I come into my glory, when I sit on my glorious throne, you each are going to be seated on a throne, and you're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to be judging the people of God. You guys are going to be leading. And you've got to think of what that would feel like for them. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to allow me to have this significant role in the coming age? You're going to allow me to judge the tribes, tribes of Israel? This is insane. But then what happens next? They begin to think about that and go, well, who's seated closest? Right? Who's the closest one to that glorious throne that Jesus is on? Because that's a big deal. And then they start looking at the other guys going, well, clearly I should be closest to Jesus, not this joker, not this guy, not these people. I should have this seat of honor. And so we step into this story, and what do we find? We find the mom saying, hey, I have a favor to ask of you. Here's what it is. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 20. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Here's here's what's going on. The question really is, how can I be seen to be great? And that desire then is being exposed in the disciples and in the mother of the disciples, What does it look like to do something significant in life? What what would it entail to have this experience where everyone looks at you and they go, you are so cool, you are so important, you are so noteworthy. And that desire isn't unique to them and it's not unique to me. It's something I think we all face. All of us are wrestling with this reality that we want to do something in life that's significant. And we're trying to think, what do I need to do to leave a mark on this world that I live in. What what gives me purpose in life? What would would lead me to a significant contribution in life? And and every person that I've ever talked to, that's really kind of the operating system of their soul. It's running in the background all the time. Decisions are being made, usually along the lines of what they think would be the best thing. Now, the kingdom is revealing that, and we are finding that in these disciples, their desire is for greatness their desire is for prominence. Their desire is for significance. And this is quickly one little insight about this. I don't think it's incidental that mom's there, right? Mommy is the one who's presenting this to Jesus saying, hey, do me a favor. Could you get my sons these two different chairs? And dealing with people for a long time now, one of the realities that we have to face is a lot of the desires that we have are profoundly shaped by our parents, a lot of us are kind of operating out of this desire to do something that would impress mom and dad. And we're trying to think, how can I get them to say they're proud of me? How can I get them to say they you know, they they notice what I'm doing and they think it's significant? And a lot of us we we are kind of operating out of that mother or father wound where we're saying, "Hey, I want my parents to notice me." And that's happening here. And Jesus begins to address the heart condition then he begins to show them what's really going on. But notice how the mom approaches this request, because the same thing can be true of us. A lot of the desires that we have, we can spiritualize them, and we can go to God, and we can kneel before him, and we can pray. She's kneeling before him. Could you please just do me this one little favor? And, and we think that it's good because we're praying about it, and we think that it's the right thing to do, and it's very religious, and it, it looks all, all right, but in, in reality, when you when you look at it, at the end of the day, really it's just posturing. You, you want something so badly and you're trying to get God on board with what you want. You're saying, God, would you please do what I want? And we have to be aware of that. Sometimes the things that we're even praying about need to be examined before the throne of God's grace. There are some side effects too. When these desires kind of come to the surface, there are side effects to pursuing these things without being self-critical. And one of them is simply that you you get yourself blinded to the cost of getting that item. And here's what I mean. When you are pursuing your desire without thinking about it, you are willing to do whatever it takes to get that. When you feel very strongly that this is the thing that really matters, you will pay whatever cost is necessary to get there, and you will be oblivious to the fact that it could be doing harm to other people. So look at how it plays out in this story. In verse 22, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You want these seats of honor, but you don't even understand what that entails and what it would cost. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And he's talking about the fact that he's about to suffer, that he's going to drink the cup of suffering and God's wrath. And he's saying, is this really what you're after? I mean, do you really think that you can follow in my footsteps? And they say, without hesitation, we can. We can. Right? They're totally blind. They're totally oblivious to the fact that what they are requesting is a very significant thing. When we want something very badly, we, will, we, we won't pay attention to the cost that it might require to get that thing. And that's what they're doing here. They are blinded by their desire. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. He's saying, yes, you will suffer on account of your faith in me. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, you will go through that. But you still don't even understand this is not something that I'm even going to do. But here's the, here's the reality. We, when we pursue our desires and we don't pay attention to what's really going on in our hearts, we are blinded to the cost that that might exert on us and on others. So a few years ago, uh, maybe five years ago or so, um, I started into a master's program um, and I felt like it was very important to me, and I was enjoying that experience. But, I, but here's what happened. In my heart, I started to feel like I need this degree, and this is super dorky, so you're going to have to figure out how to apply it to yourself, but in the pastoral world, we look at each other and we go, how can I be important, and how can other people that do something like me notice me and think that I'm good at what I do? And so I was thinking a master's degree, That if I get a master's in theology, then all of a sudden doors might open for me and other pastors might go, oh man, you're awesome, dude. You're so cool. Let's hang out and have coffee and talk and you can, all these different things. So I'm pursuing this master's degree and I'm, the the language of my heart is I have to do this. So then when Ash and I sit down, my wife and I, we sit down, we begin to talk through the cost of this thing. That it's going to cost some significant time that if i'm pursuing a degree i'm going to have to give time and energy to the homework to the projects and all these different things and that means i'm taking time away from family time away from my kids time away from my wife there's a financial cost to it so if i'm going to pursue this thing we have to decide that it is worth it to spend significant money for me to pursue this there's there's all kinds of costs there's a cost in the sense that i'm in ministry and i'm doing things and if i'm doing education, that means that I'm maybe not doing ministry that I could be doing. There's all kinds of costs. And so Ash is kind of talking me through this, and here's what I'm saying. You don't understand. I have to do this. I have to do this. That's the language of the heart. I'm blinded to the reality that this thing could do harm on a lot of different fronts because that desire has become all-encompassing. Now, a lot of us face that in different ways. We have things that are on the radar of our hearts right now, and we're just thinking, if somehow I could do that, then that would be for me heaven on earth. If I could get this thing done, if I could have these people do this for me, we've all got these different things, these desires, and the kingdom of God is saying, let's look at that together. Maybe that isn't a kingdom priority. Maybe that isn't something that God has placed on your heart, but you've taken that over on yourself, and you're saying, this is the most important thing. So we sometimes are blind to the cost, and that's one of the side effects of pursuing our desires without being critical. But there's another side effect as well. It affects and negatively affects our relationships. When you want something that badly, it will put you at odds with other people. Anyone who might prevent you from going after that thing is going to be problematic for you. Look how it plays out in our story here this morning. Verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers. Here's what's going on. They're realizing, we want those seats. And now everyone is in conflict. Everyone is thinking to themselves, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they think they deserve what I have coming. And there's conflict. When we pursue our desires uncritically, it it puts conflict on our relationships. And if you want to kind of trace back to your desires and you go, you know, where, where are things going haywire here? Start with the place where you're indignant. If there are people in your life right now that when they come to mind, you resent them, you get jealous of them, you get angry and bitter and indignant, trace that back. What, what is it about them that is really just revealing the desire of your heart? We need to be aware that the kingdom of God puts our hearts on clear display. And sometimes what we find we don't like. But God, in His grace, doesn't leave us there. He begins to craft on us and show us there is a better way. There is a way forward. Here's the second point of our message this morning. The kingdom of God redefines what greatness is, it gives a new definition. We think we want this, and Jesus is saying, No, what you really need is greatness. And let me show you what that really entails. Greatness is hard to pin down because the world defines it one way, and Jesus is going to say it's the exact opposite. But worldly success means that you're at the top, right? That you are at the top of your organization. You're the most important person. You're the most compensated person. You're the most celebrated person. You're the MVP. You're valuable, and you have achieved and attained greatness within your organization, And that's what we often use as our metric. We say, this would be wonderful if I was considered great. This is what it would look and feel like. And Jesus then says, it's actually the exact opposite. Look with me at verses 25 and following. Jesus called the disciples together, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. That is different, isn't it? It's so different. My definition of greatness doesn't look or feel like that. And Jesus is saying, you need to evaluate whether or not you're tracking with me. Greatness looks like service. Greatness looks like sacrifice for the sake of others. Worldly greatness lords it over people. It says, I'm the boss, you need to do what I am asking you to do, or you can be dismissed. I'm the boss, I'm in charge, and I've got something that I want done, and you are an instrument for me to achieve that that goal. You are going to execute for me, or you are going to be dismissed. That's what worldly greatness looks like. It looks like exercising authority. It looks like I'm in charge, so I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And Jesus says, here's the real definition. True greatness, if you want to be great, you become a servant. If you want to be the greatest you become a slave to all true greatness is very very different in the past few years i started reading a lot more leadership material as we were launching this campus i realized that leadership was uh, an underdeveloped gift in me and i thought i need to get coaching and i need to pursue this so i can get better and better uh, to lead our to lead our campus and i've probably read a dozen books and um, one of the things that i'm noticing as i study this topic and try to grow in it is that there is a point of departure because i've read christian books and business books and all kinds of different leadership stuff there is a point of departure between business books and christian leadership and it, there needs to be really because what jesus is saying here is so radically different now we can always learn from vision casting and setting goals and benchmarks and, you know, having smart metrics to pay attention to. We can always benefit from that. But Jesus is saying here that the, that the bottom line is different. In the business world, what's the bottom line? It's profit. If you're, if you're in a business, you want to make money. So you are paying attention to are the things that we are doing creating more and more profit. And then we align our goals in that direction. What's the bottom line for Christian leadership? What's kind of the what's the bottom line the most important thing that we're going after? What is it that we would be able to say this is what Jesus wants from us? And I think it's really important how we define that because the implications are huge. If we define it the way that we think success ought to look and it's not what Jesus says, we're going to begin pursuing some some really unhelpful things. So what is it? Is it to grow our campus? Is it to become a big big church? because if that's our if that's our bottom line we're going to make decisions accordingly. I think the bottom line, if you're paying attention to this story and what the rest of the Bible really talks about with Christian leadership, I think you got to place relationships in there somewhere. That having a place where people can experience the glory of God and we get to do that thing together as a church. I think that's a big deal. And I think we need to be careful of how we define true greatness then, because Jesus is saying it looks like service. And we need to be able to sacrifice our own desires to pursue that. Now, I was meeting with somebody from our campus uh, just this week, and we were talking through this very subject. Um, We were talking about how easy it is, especially where we're at in the life of our campus, to think it is all about growth. And it's all about getting the task done. It's all about making sure that we have set very smart goals and we've got everyone moving in that direction. And he was sharing that during a time of prayer, God, by his spirit, was just revealing that might not be the best goal. If we are task-oriented, and I do this myself, if I am task-oriented and I think, here's what our church needs, and I say, this is the most important thing, this is the bottom line, and I look behind me, And there is a wake of carnage because I'm using people and I'm demanding and I'm exercising authority and I'm lording it over people saying, here's where we're going together. And I notice that these relationships are mangled. That's not okay. Jesus is reminding us here of the fact that greatness in the kingdom loves and serves other people. Greatness in the kingdom sacrifices for the benefit of others. Do you know what I can do every single week, every single day? I wake up and what's on my mind? What I want to do. I wake up and I go, here's what I want to do and here's what I think the church should do. And then I want to rally everyone to that. Jesus is saying, here's what greatness looks like. I wake up in the morning and I don't just think, here's what I want to do. How can I get everyone on board? I think, here's a bunch of people that God has called me to love and serve. How can I die to my ambitions and my agenda for them? And how can I adopt God's love for them so that I would sacrifice myself for for your benefit? How can I lay my life down to try to bless you? That's what true greatness is. Jesus is saying greatness in the kingdom is sacrificial service. It is a willingness to do what is best for people, even if it means great harm to yourself. That's exactly what Jesus was doing here. So the third point that we're going to see then is that this kingdom of God points us to the gospel the kingdom of God points us to the gospel, the good news of what God has done. And we see that most clearly in that reality that Jesus laid down his life for us. So if you're looking at the chapter there, you've got the gospel bracketing this whole teaching. So what does he do on the front end? In verses 17 to 19, he explains, we're going to Jerusalem so that I can do these different gospel events. I'm going to die. I'm going to do this stuff. And that is how salvation is going to come. That's how ransom is going to come. And then at the very end of this teaching, what does he say? He explains it. He says, this is what the gospel is. This is the gospel application in verse 28. So let's look at them one at a time. Verses 17 to 19, the gospel events. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So what is he saying? The greatest person in that conversation, the greatest person in that region, the greatest person who's ever lived is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. That's what greatness really is. I'm going there and I'm doing it intentionally because this is what the Father has for me. This is the way of salvation. And people who will look on me and trust in me and believe in me will experience life and forgiveness. But this is what I'm doing. This is the the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Unless we think it's easy, he describes it. It's very rugged. He's going to be mocked. People are going to, the Gentiles are going to put robes on him and Mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. Look at you. They're going to spit in his face. They're going to punch him. They're going to pluck out his beard. They're going to they're ridicule him. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. So if you're going to follow him, if you're going to go the way of Jesus Christ, the way of your master, the way of the king, it, it's not going to be easy, right? If you're going to serve other people, it sounds good. In days one and two, they might feel awesome. Like, oh, I'm doing such a great job. I'm loving these people. I'm serving them until they start treating you like a servant. And then it gets hard. And it's easy to kind of go back on it and say, look, I don't want to do that anymore. And we can, we can sacrifice and, and finally realize, man, the cross is way harder than I thought. I don't like this as much as I thought I would. But Jesus is reminding us, this is the gospel and this is the way to greatness. And then at the end, look at verse 28. He makes it abundantly clear. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. And he is then explaining what he is doing. By his death and his resurrection, he is offering life. He is willing to liberate people. They're ransomed because these desires that we think we're in control of, that we think that we're pursuing, they are actually controlling us. And he's saying, I'm going to free people. I'm going to ransom them by my death. People are going to look on me and they're going to experience forgiveness and grace and liberation. You're gonna have peace and joy and you're gonna have this new way of life that God is designing for you. So he is explaining then the good news of the gospel, that God loved the world and sent his son to die as a substitute for sinners like me, for people who will look on him and say, he's getting what I deserve. He's drinking the cup of suffering and punishment and wrath that rightly is due to me. And if I trust in him, then I get his glorious life and the redemption that he offers and the ransom that is freely mine by trusting in him for salvation. Now, if we're going to follow him and we're going to pursue his greatness, here's the point. It's going to look cruciform, meaning if you're going to be a great individual in the kingdom of God, it's going to look like that. It's going to look like a cross. You're going to be laying down your life in blessing to other people. That's what Jesus was doing here. He was saying, follow me. And he goes to a cross and he dies in our place. If we're going to do great things, if we're going to be great leaders, if we're going to have great influence in this world, in our workplaces and in our families, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like us laying down our lives and looking at other people and saying, I want to bless you. I want to serve you. I want to sacrifice my ambitions and my goals for you so that you would experience the goodness of God. So I'm going to pray in just a moment and I'm going to invite the band to come and the first thing that I want to pray for is anyone in here who has not surrendered their life to this king. And I'm sure that in a group this size there may be some sitting amongst us. And so the band's going to come and I'm going to ask that you would stand and I'm going to pray over all of us but first thing I'll pray is for those of us who have not trusted in him yet. And I'm going to draw our attention to what he has done and what that means for us and then I want to pray for all of us that are believers, that we would lay down our lives in service to one another. So go ahead and stand with me if you would, and we will pray. Lord, we thank you for sending King Jesus to reveal his upside-down kingdom. And I pray for any friend in here, anyone who can hear my voice, who has not yet surrendered their life to him, placing their faith in him for forgiveness and and new desires and a new agenda for their life, Lord, would you give them the courage to make it known right now that they would go public with their faith? Lord, I pray for all of us that are believers, would you help us to be aware of our, our desires and anything that doesn't fit with your kingdom, God, would you reveal in us some some things that maybe aren't appropriate because they they just don't, they're not from you. And we might be sacrificing a whole lot to try to get them and we're just doing damage to the people we love and even to ourselves, Lord. Would you help us to identify what those things are and then to pursue your better way. Help us to love people and lay down our lives for their good. We need your help, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.